Jack. Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell. The mouthpiece of a revolutionary vanguard party, peopled with only the most biologically degenerate specimens imaginable. Do you ever get the feeling that the world is getting worse and worse? A sense of inexorable creeping decay? A burning in the pit of your stomach? The blinding fear of entropy's implacable advance? Don't worry, it isn't just your mental illness speaking. This is how the world really is. Or at least, according to Spandrel, a pseudonymous online thinker whose only available biographical information is on his website, spandrel.com. I am a European man living in Asia who blogs about the past and future of civilization. His work, published on spandrel.com, on Twitter and on Urbit, has been variously described as reactionary, neo-reactionary or even full reactionary. He's best known for his theory of biological Leninism, a conceptual framework which describes the inexorable decline of the West. Basically, a progressive Leninist vanguard party is formed in a decentralised manner, attracting the lowest status members of Western society with the promise of higher status. For Spandrel, these low status members of society are the biologically inferior, those who would be low status no matter their social context, that is, outside of a bio-Leninist political milieu. There's plenty more to this guy's worldview. The need for a new religion to be developed, status point theory, point deer, make horse, IQ shredders, signalling spirals. If any of this sounds interesting, check his blog out, after, of course, finishing this episode, preferably multiple times. So listeners, make yourselves comfortable with the revolution, which is already underway. You can't fight it, you can't stop it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Those types of... Who, who's that guy? There's like the uh, the decline of the West. Aren't you Aren't you reading a book about uh, yeah, that guy? Spengler. Um, He's Spang- pretty yeah, yeah. different to Spengler. I'd say I, I'm enjoying Spengler a lot more than I enjoyed Spandrel's three essays on bio-Leninism or the core tenets <laughs> of bio-Leninism. <laughs> But I guess what I'm what I'm saying is, uh, like there's this um, <clears throat> there's this thing, uh, like Marx does it as well, um, Hegel did it, like, uh, trying to understand some sort of uh, quote unquote law or invariant, um, material or economic cause or, or driver of history, and using that to predict the future, like large scale political future. And uh, in particular, it always seems as though it has to do with like the collapse of <laughs> Western civilization <laughs> or whatever. Like, and, and there's lots of different ways of coming at it, whether it's like Spangler or Bloody Shovel stuff or Marx or wh- whoever, you know, um, or like CRT stuff has it. <laughs> I would say people trying to prognosticate based on historical trends or trying to pick out particular things from history that they think will determine our future is is pretty common many of them though don't i think many do have a an apocalyptic bent to them seems almost (laughs) an eschatological discipline but that's not all of them i think many many liberal ones the sort of people who believe in this idea of progress as an irreversible trend are almost universally triumphalist about it. Many of them have this fundamental belief that progress moves in one direction. That's a really good point. Yeah. There's a, it's, um, well, 
or even that progress is a, a thing that exists in history yeah it's a there's a two ways to think about it um optimism versus pessimism about the future but in either sense uh it's like um will the future be better than than the present or the past and the pessimist says it will it will be worse and the optimist says it will be better but they're both wrong if if their explanations are kind of deterministic if they're saying yes it will be you know <laughs> because they're yeah, making this is also a bit of, of like... a cop out but <laughs> saying it's going to be better or worse is a bit low resolution the better or worse exactly. by which measures yes it's going to be different and there are going to be certain things I'm sure in 20 years that I'll like more than now and certain things I'll like less. Yeah, Just so like the progressives... It's going to be better doesn't really tell you much. The progressives are, saying, are kind of implicitly saying the world will be better in the ways that I think are good. Yeah, <laughs> the world will more closely resemble my headcanon for how planet Earth is supposed to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My, uh, my uh, vision of the... Uh, of the great society. So, uh, anyways, back to Spandrel more generally. So yeah, he's yeah, basically yeah. trying to give this broader. He's ha he has some really interesting ideas. I'll just go through the dot points of them. It's really because there's only like five of them. But he he one of his ideas is that basically the loss of religion in the West and we need to replace it with a new religion. He's got this yeah. thing which comes up a lot. A lot. So. New, the new religion idea doesn't feature much in biological Leninism, but he's got this thing called status point theory, which uh, we can unpack in a little bit. But it's basically that, like, the primary driver of human behavior is um, essentially chasing status. Yeah, um, and that features a bit in the bio-Leninism essays, but it's not... He doesn't go into it much. He just says part of the reason why Leninism is so effective is that it offers status to low-status people and status is important, and that's about as far as he goes. It's probably, it's perhaps, it's pro I would say it might be the primary, like, causal mechanism in his argument. Um, yeah, I should say, it, actually, he doesn't... So I disagree with his overall thesis, but he says plenty of things that are worth considering. Like, I don't think... Reading this was a complete waste of time. No, unlike some of the stuff that I'm like plenty. <laughs> you don't want to read Call the Crocodile again? <laughs> please, please. I'm I'm call only going to read Call Call of F Gardner um, just for the just for the the lols, but purely self-flagellatory lols, not because I actually think yeah, it's worth yeah. reading. Yeah, yeah. It'd be like chewing broken glass. <laughs> I um, listeners, I we we had a discussion. Yesterday about well, our content. Today, my time. Well, early today, Jack's time. Uh, about content going forward um, for 2023, <laughs> and I basically said to Jack, "I'm like, I can't do, I can't do fiction." Levi just <laughs> well, vetoed <least>. fiction. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with some caveats, and one of the caveats was like, if it's a really good book, so we're going to do Atlas Shrug. Well, uh, Jack doesn't think it's a good book, but like, if it's a, if it's, a I don't think it's a bad book. I, worth, I just think it's a solid reading. like. Six and a half out of ten book that goes on for way too long. But I did also make another exception, which was I would read Call of F. Gardner if he wants to. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've said you don't want to read fiction. So your two exceptions are an 1100 page book of, <laughs> that really could be like 300 pages. 
and F. Gardner's book that he wrote in eight days and probably didn't edit. <laughs> yeah, so so. I'll, I'll be doing solo episodes on fiction. <laughs> yeah, except for the occasional head fuck for Levo. So, anyways, um, we needed a new religion. Status points are awesome. Um, yeah, his other yeah. point is Islam, uh, which he he he, uh, he doesn't like Islam basically. Um, <laughs> um, then another Particularly thing, Sunni Islam, in particular. Yeah, yeah. In particular, so he feels that in in Sunni Islam, the absence of a figure like an Ayatollah means that it has a similar to Bio-Leninism, a constant leftward ratchet of leaders appealing to inferior or low status members of society to to bring them over to their cause, which leads to increasing extremism with no upper limit. That mental model might make more sense to listeners. Once they've finished the episode and um, really understand yeah. the the depths of biological Leninism, why Spandrel trusts Shiites more than Sunnis. Another thing that he talks about is point dear make horse, which is essentially just getting people to believe absurd things. Uh, it's like yep. cultural scrambling, signaling spirals, which is. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, IQ shredders, which is a funny one, which is basically like the destruction of human intelligence by basically smart people going to cities. So the city is the IQ shredder, and mm-hmm. and then not having children. So all the smart people are basically not having children, and all the dumb people are, <laughs> uh, are having kids. So he's just going to like become a dumb species. Um, yeah. And then his final thing is, is biological extent, That's to a some extent true in that birth rate drops with increasing education until you get to postgraduate degrees, and then it increases again. Really? Hmm. I didn't know yeah. that. That's an interesting yeah, point. You get, a, you get a bit of a bump once you get your PhD or MD or whatever. That's a, yeah, it's I want causally have like related, kids. people. If you want more children, you better stay at university for a long time. Don't worry <laughs> about things like having sex. Just just get those degrees, and then like, you'll probably just get pregnant once you get a degree. I don't know. I don't know how this works. Even then, don't don't have sex. Just go to a yeah. Sperm just bank don't do it. Just, just acquire more degrees, and eventually acquire more degrees. You'll have the immaculate conception of your sixth <laughs> doctoral thesis or something like that. And uh, just come into turkey bases and just run around, just <laughs> injecting people with your sperm. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we'll solve um, the demographic crisis. And then he's. It <laughs> <laughs> saves civilization of turkey <laughs> Postgraduate education. <laughs> Bunch of overly educated. Uh, Men running around the street with a lukewarm cum in in turkey basters, <laughs> turkey basters <laughs> assaulting people. <laughs> just just the runoff of the cum tributes to Xi Jinping. <laughs> anyway, anyway I think at some point we were we were meaning to discuss what biological and then his final is. major concept is what we're covering today in depth, which is biological Leninism. So I. Uh, I won't go into that now because we're going to spend the next however long talking about yeah. it. But yeah, so these are the major, like, I guess, parts of his ide- not ideology, his um, ideascape <laughs> that yeah, explain his- why Western civilization is collapsing. Yeah. 
And I'll increase it. I'll include a link to this guy's blog in the in the show notes. Whether it stays online or not, whether he completely moves to Urbit or something like that, I I can't guarantee. But at least while it's functional, it's so it's is, pretty fun Urbit? to flick through his his blog posts. He's got a lot of them, and the yeah. comment section is pretty wild. Urbit? the 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 comment section really is just people who who agree with him fairly uncritically just coming into each other's mouths and into their own, just agreeing, aggressively agreeing with each other. I, uh, I avoided reading the comments. <laughs> oh, no, I, I live for that. <laughs> I was like, the comments are going to be total trash. All right, let me read one, one, one comment. <laughs> they're not, they're, to their credit, they're mostly properly spelled and punctuated, which is better than 99% of the internet. Yeah, 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 that's, that's good. That's that's a good bloody shovel spot. is attracting the creme de la creme of frog posters. <laughs> I think that um <laughs> our our Discord's not too bad when it comes to spelling and punctuation. Our Discord is impeccable. There, there is nothing <laughs> I will I will say against our Discord. Everyone on it's a champion. Shout out to the Discord. You guys are yeah. awesome. Uh, Shout out I to know, names I know, who, uh, seems to, who seems to spam about 50 pages of notes. on Name like, is a fucking animal. Names. Yeah, name yeah. is just an animal when it comes to reading books and making notes on them. Anyway. So this is one of the funny things about the Discord. Like sometimes uh, I don't necessarily like post, but I'll read stuff. Um, and it's really cool to see that people are starting to like just engage with each other. Um, but some of the stuff that gets posted is like serious, <laughs> serious reading, <laughs> like serious, yeah. uh, content, you know, <laughs> does names have a blog, po- blog, he should write a blog, man. <laughs> yeah, he really should. Or he can just keep posting stuff to our discord. <laughs> That's good too. <laughs> okay. So where should we start? So that's that's the problem that he's trying to solve, which is yeah, why is Western civilization collapsing, and where is it going, and how how is that collapsing collapse happening? Let's first define Leninism because he doesn't really define Leninism, and his definition of Leninism is somewhat different to I think the more commonly accepted definition. So, for example, Marxism doesn't really come into his definition of Leninism, whereas to most people. Leninism is a subset of Marxism. So the very basically, Leninism, Leninism's a form of Marxism. So it's he believed that bourgeois capitalism represented a stage of history preceding socialism, which preceded communism, and capitalism had served its purpose. Although at various points in his career, Lenin also seemed to indicate that you could skip the capitalist stage of history in Russia. And you, you wanted to get to communism. That's the really good state of society. It's a utopia where things like class will melt away, national boundaries will melt away, the state will melt away, we'll live in a, a, a paradise. Where Leninism de- departs from other forms of Marxism or the forms of Marxism that preceded it was in Lenin's idea of forming a vanguard party. So to Lenin... The way that you can get to a workers' revolution against feudalism or capitalism is to form a vanguard of the proletariat. And this would be a small party, 
of really, really dedicated people recruited from the working classes who will agitate on behalf of the proletariat and they'll institute the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is part of socialism preceding communism, on behalf of the proletariat. And this is as opposed to revolution through something like trade unions, for example, as as syndicalists would prefer versus Leninists. And then from Leninism, you got further offshoots like Stalinism and Trotskyism. And what Spandrel talks about in some ways more, re- more resembles Stalinism in its bureaucracy than it does Leninism, although it departs from Leninism in many other ways in that he doesn't ever really discuss Marxism, apart from a brief mention of cultural Marxism, a buzzword that I find frequently bandied about on in, in more right-wing spaces, which I'm still not quite sure what it means. I've never really seen it very well defined anywhere. Importantly for the understanding of bio-Leninism is basically this formation of a vanguard party from from members of society who are lower status, who wish for a revolution so that they can get higher status. That's, at least to my mind, the kernel of Leninism that Spandrel has taken and then made biological in bio-Leninism. Does that sound about right to you? His definition of Leninism is slightly different. Do I even agree with what he's... Okay. So I think what you said, as I get, I'm not like, <laughs> uh, I'm not super well uh, versed in the different strands or descendants of Marxism. Um, the different subgenres so prob- of Marx. Yeah, different subgenres. <laughs> so you like, I I don't know if I can necessarily um, <clears throat> add anything there. I'll take you. Like it sounds reasonable what you just said. Um, he kind of, uh, the word biological Leninism just seems like an inappropriate thing to call it, <laughs> what he's talking about. I think it's more, it's a tagline that's very catchy. As it's I alluded catchy, to yeah. earlier, most of why I ended up looking more into this guy was because biological Leninism sounds so ridiculous. And I expect in large part, he picked the Leninism part of biological Leninism because it sounds snappy and it's eye-catching and like i was gonna say intriguing maybe to a particular type of person it's intriguing what biological leninism is i'm not sure it was selected because it it closely resembles leninism is he grasping for straws? i i'll okay i'm gonna be generous and not go straight i don't think he's totally to the, grasping for straws <laughs> uh, i won't go straight to he's once we explain it a bit you'll it'll become obvious hopefully <laughs> why he's done that yeah. uh, i disagree with it but i i'll kind of give him poetic license <laughs> levi's um, become an avowed bio-leninist as a result <laughs> of these three blog posts <laughs> um yeah so it's it's mainly to do with um the dictatorship by some sort of underclass essentially and mm. lenin sort of I guess what what he's saying, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but what Spandrel's saying is like essentially what he calls classical Leninism 
or Russian Leninism or formal Leninism was essentially the explicit revolutionary organized form of um, proletariat dictatorship. And biological Leninism is essentially the same way, uh, is essentially like a different method for getting to the same outcome. So a dictatorship by the underclass or what, or they call, what they interestingly call the cacoc, cac, what they call the uh, cacistocracy, cacistocracy. Yeah, the cacistocracy, <laughs> the, the rule by the least qualified to rule. Which under classical Leninism um, is achieved explicitly through like, essentially revolution um and uh and biological leninism ends up with a cacistocracy except it's by a very different mechanism and like the biological part of that is is uh his his explanation of how how we end up like that and basically the west is achieving gradually cacistocracy um, and Leninism via a different via a different mechanism. Yeah. So what he says, one insight of Lenin's was, and I don't know if Lenin explicitly said this. I've read the April Theses and what is to be done, but that was a while ago. So I'm not. I'm by no means a Lenin scholar, but I I don't think Lenin phrased things in this way. Where Spandrel attributes to Lenin the insight that. Recruiting for your vanguard party from low-status people who hope for higher status if the revolutionary movement is successful, that insight's a stroke of genius because he says it solves a loyalty problem. He it identifies for any political movement, this is true, there is a loyalty problem where yes. in some way the more competent people you hire and or recruit to your movement... And the more options outside of your movement those people have, to an extent, the more their loyalty is suspect. I think it's more complex than he acknowledges. So, for example, you could have someone very low status in your movement whose loyalty might end up being compromised because someone from a competing movement offers them something better. Mm. So their loyalty is not as as durable as he makes out. Similarly, someone who's high status joining your movement might turn out to be very loyal because they deeply believe in whatever cause you're offering. But look, we'll just, for now, we'll take him at his word that Lenin's insight of recruiting low status people to the vanguard party of a revolution is a recipe for ensuring loyalty. If you promise those people a higher status in the society to come, in the post-revolutionary society, than what they currently enjoy. Now, in classical Leninism, those people are taken from the working class and, Len and Lenin said to them, and this is Spandrel's Lenin, I don't think this is necessarily the, the Vladimir Ilyich communist gospel, but... Spandrel's Lenin says to the working class people, look, if you revolt against the Tsar with me, then we're going to have communism. You're going to live in a worker's paradise. Effectively, you will be very high status. 
and therefore they support Lenin. And because they're low status in the society in which they currently exist, they become very loyal to Lenin and to the Bolshevik party. Because what else are they going to do? They're going to go back to being a shit kicker in Tsarism where they're poor, no one respects them, they have shitty jobs, etc., etc. Biological Leninism comes in in the West where the problem that formal or classical Leninism runs into in the West is that the working class is too wealthy and too comfortable and so calls to class action or or class as an organising principle, aren't effective. But Lenin's fundamental insight, or the insight that Spandrel attributes to him, of forming a vanguard party of the low status remains. Unlike in Russia, where with classical Leninism, the low status were people who were poorer and of the working classes compared to the aristocracy, in the United States... Those people are the biologically inferior, hence biological Leninism. Now, what qualifies as biological inferiority, I hear you ask. Well, it's... Why don't, why it's don't you... All... Wait, wait, before Jack answers, why, why, don't, why don't you take a guess, dear listeners? Yeah, listeners, guess... <laughs> Just guess. ...what biological inferiority entails. We can play the theme music right now as people think of all, think all of our biologically of, inferior groups that could be recruited a, to the biological Leninist of a, cause. Of uh, a neo-reactionary uh, European male who thinks that the West is in decline. <laughs> so chief among these biologically inferior specimens are women. Uh, certainly it's... <laughs> Over 50% of the population is going to be joining the bio-Leninist vanguard party, so they're doing well with numbers. That is very strategic. You've got non-whites, so black people. They're, they're apparently biologically inferior. They'll be joining the party. Homosexuals, trans people. He calls it a, a coalition of the fringes. These people who see that... Under bio Len- or a, a bio Leninist order offers them higher status than the current meritocratic order, and therefore they they support the bio Leninist liberal order. Yeah, I actually really like. No, no, you love it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, don't like don't like anything about. No, we can um, end the episode. I now. thought it was an interesting way to frame it. Was was the coalition of the fringes. I actually thought that was really... Yeah, that, um, that was an interesting... Yeah, That I, was an interesting framing. And I was like, I, I get what he's saying. <laughs> I have read that somewhere else before. Oh, is it, is it, a, is it a bit of a meme, <clears throat> potentially, in the, in the neo-reactionary space? I think, actually, I might have even read it in Alexander Dugan's work. But I'm not, I'm not sure. I've, that term was familiar to me. I take... <laughs> Take that as you will, listeners. But Jack's a huge fan of Yarvin. I, <laughs> yeah, look, Spandrel's got a Bitcoin address. I've already emptied my wallet and just sent everything. <laughs> is uh, is uh, Spandrel fin-domming you, hey, mate? <laughs> <laughs> Getting fin-dommed by Spandrel and Yarvin. <laughs> he bought a nice suit and sent me photos of it without wearing shoes. 
<laughs> Sent you a pair of his worn socks, hey? <laughs> <laughs> his bath water. <laughs> uh, tragic. Um, <laughs> so, um, where, where do I want to take this? Okay, so there's a loyalty problem. Yeah, how about we talk about the loyalty and status bit first? Because that's one of the more interesting parts of... of yeah, so I was, I was going to suggest status and loyalty would be two two of the key things so maybe let's uh i'll just say what the loyalty problem is and then we'll come back to it i think because the loyalty problem is basically solved by his theory of status so the loyalty problem as jack sort of alluded to is essentially how do you make sure that people stay loyal to, to the cause to the political cause his proposed solution to that that problem is essentially status and in one of his uh in the interview so there's three essays or three blog posts and an interview which is transcription of an interview that he did for um another website and in that interview he he actually gave it a specific name uh which he calls uh status conservation or Mm. uh the law of status conservation and with respect to that, he said, in my view, this is a quote, in my view, the fundamental law of the universe is status con- conservation. People don't want to lose status. Hence, the guy in power doesn't want to lose power ever. And maybe if we generalize that a little bit more to not just like conservation of, of status, but um, uh, status pursuit. So try, always trying to move up in status. And if you are if you are already up in status or above somebody else in status, trying to conserve it, so it's uh, like um, non-reversible <laughs> change of status is entropic. Yeah. And this might—I mean, this this might just be stating the obvious—but status is zero sum in that as you, what do you gain mean status, by that? it's. I mean, the the status you gain is at somebody else's expense. So status is a an ordering in some way, of, yeah. of the ability in society to make other people do what you want, of the ability to get resources, of the ability to get respect. And as you ascend in status, you are above the status of other people. There's no absolute status. It's always relative to the status of your peers. And that's as opposed to uh, positive sum ideas, which, which is uh, like this, this terminology comes, just so that people know, um, this, these, this terminology zero sum and positive sum and there's also negative sum, comes from game theory, which actually informs biological Leninism. So I'll just mention it briefly, like basically like a game, uh, uh, say you've got a number of rounds when you're playing a game. Uh, at the end of play, so the conclusion of whatever sequence of rounds, uh, you distribute the points, whether in poker it's like the, the money or whatever. And uh, zero-sum games are basically where uh, there's a finite set kitty prize pool uh, of points. And in order to win, one person to win, the other person has to lose. So in chess, one person wins, one person loses. In Texas Hold'em, one person takes the whole pot, everybody else gets get slashed um whereas in positive sum games which uh the classic idea is like uh mutual exchange where i i give somebody ten dollars for a sandwich they give me a sandwich they wanted my ten dollars more than they wanted to hold onto their sandwich i wanted that sandwich more than i wanted 
my $10. So in the exchange, we both come out better off. And so status, he's, he's basically saying that <clears throat> the drive to achieve more status uh, and uh, conserve the status that one already has, that, well, one is obviously a zero-sum game, but two, that that's the driving force behind uh, human motivations. He says somewhere else that when he realized that, that like changed his view on everything and that it all of a sudden it made his entire understanding of like human history all of a sudden make sense. Yeah, and this is, this is one of the things in his essays that I don't really disagree with in that status competition is a massive driver of human behavior. Yeah, did you want to add anything to the status stuff? Yeah, I've got a quote here from him. It's a reasonably long one, but I think it sums up his views of status quite well and it also brings in biology which which is important so he says i think this isn't the first of the three essays leninism is of course applied socialism socialism was huge before leninism was even a thing and that marxism was and is popular is not due only to soviet patronage socialism works by hacking the social calculus module that humans have in our brains remember humans care deeply about status Status is what drives human behaviour. Everybody works to achieve more status and to avoid losing status. Socialism, of course, sells egalitarianism. It tells people with low status that they can get some more. The Industrial Revolution had forced millions of peasants into the cities, and they all felt they had lost status in the process. Economists will tell you that the standards of living of industrial workers, according to some measures, had actually improved, and that may be so, but the workers didn't think so, and they were pissed. So these socialists come by and tell them that they have this plan to make them gain status big time. That was huge. Yes, sure, Christianity had also started promising the meek that they were morally higher than rich people. They'd all go to heaven, unlike those perfect rich guys. But that didn't translate into actual real-world status. Socialism was promising actual goods. And so it became huge. It's still huge. It's pretty much catnip for humans. It's instant checkmate. Socialism works not only because it promises higher status to a lot of people. Socialism is catnip because it promises status to people who, deep down, know they shouldn't have it. There is such a thing as natural law, the natural state of any normally functioning human society. Basic biology tells us people are different. Some are more intelligent, more attractive, more crafty and popular. Everybody knows, deep in their lizard brains, how human mating works. Women are attracted to the top dogs. Being generous, all human societies default to a Pareto distribution, where 20% of people are high status, and everyone else just has to put up with their inferiority for life. That's just how it works. So a long quote, but I think that sums up the bio-Leninist approach to status, or how status fits into bio-Leninism. So to, to expand what Jack was saying, there's, a, there's also an aspect of communism versus, or like socialism versus capitalism and Spandrel makes this point like uh capitalism is really hard to do well in um you know it's competitive uh, <laughs> and you have to be competent to do well in a, a functioning capitalist society um and so in order to achieve status in a wealth-based society you actually have to be competent and because basically what he, he views as uh, biological degenerates Although, surprisingly enough, well done, Spandrel. He didn't use the word degenerate. <laughs> no, I'll give him that. He's a, <laughs> look, Although this is 2017, a, I'm pretty sure He's a bleeding heart liberal. 
in NRX clothing. Um, so, uh, so he, uh, he talks about, um, why in particular anti-capitalist, what would you say? Like status, status ideologies are appealing not to who he views as like the ultimate, most competent, naturally awesome people, white European men (laughs) and why, yeah. Why capitalism is appealing to them because they're competent and smart, <laughs> and communism is appealing to all the uh, the, the coalition of the fringes. And he says, uh, mm, "Quote mm. for an unreasonable, maladjusted, weird person, your options are much more limited in <laughs> capitalist system. Joining a crazy political party which possesses the abolition of the very thing that makes society possible, very likely the best." is very likely the best shot they'll ever get at achieving high status in their lives. So, yeah, why not communism? Precisely. I follow that with an, up with another quote where he says, of, of Leninism, so classical Leninism, the Leninism in Russia that was appealing to the working class, only peasants and workers were trusted. Why? Because only peasants and workers could be trusted to be loyal. Rich people or people with the inborn traits which lead to being rich... As an aside, white guys, will always have status in any natural society. They will always do all right. That's why they can't be trusted. The stakes are never high for them. If anything, they'd rather have more freedom to realise their talents. People of peasant stock, though, they came from the dregs of society. They know very well that all they have was given to them by the party. And so they will be loyal to the death because they know it. If the communist regime falls, their status will fall as fast as a hammer in a well. Mm. And the same goes for everyone else, especially those ethnic minorities. So in that, in that quote, he lays out that, that status thesis that we've been talking about for a while, why this vanguard party, whether in classical or biological Leninism, seeks to recruit from low-status groups because those people can be trusted to be loyal. Now, Levi, how... How seriously do you take this? Do you think that because someone is low status and a political movement promises them status, they will, they're very likely to start supporting that movement and they'll fanatically support it? And on the flip side, will people who have a lot of other options be much less amenable to the overtures of any particular Leninist vanguard party? Uh, okay, that's an interesting question. Um I can, I can, well, I'll sort of answer that in two steps. Step step one is my personal point of view, (laughs) which is that uh, human nature can't be reduced to a single um, variable like that, except in the the one case, which is kind of like a bit strange uh, to think about, but... um, the thing that makes humans different, the, the, the defining feature of humans is the ability to create new knowledge, i.e. our creativity. And our creativity is the thing that accounts for the immense diversity of cultures and languages and technologies and explanations from 
you know, the mythological and religious to now these days we have scientific explanations of the world, um, the creation of mathematics and the ability to transform the environment around us and in the nth degree actually transform our own morphology. Um, <clears throat> you know, like <clears throat> no other mammal. So reptiles can like regrow limbs. Like if you pull off a, uh, a skink's skink lizard's tail, it will regrow. <laughs> um, but no other mammal regrows limbs, but we regrow limbs, but we just don't do it by regrowing it organically. We do it technologically with pros prosthetics. So, um, and in the nth degree, like we might unlock things like, um, space Marines, <laughs> space Marines and, uh, in vivo, uh, genetic modification, which at the moment would be an immensely dangerous thing to do. But, you know, I think it's on the cards for the, the long-term future. Um, so that's the defining characteristic. And that thing means that <clears throat> all other alternative reductions like status or other people say like a religious reductions or um, uh, can I think of other reductions? Status seems to be one of the main ones. Oh, um, <clears throat> sex drive. Like you see that from the um, evolutionary psychologists a lot. They try to reduce everything to basically mating games. Um, those yeah. sort of reductions uh, contradict my thesis, which is the defining characteristic of humans is creativity and creativity is the ability to do new things. Um, so I think it's just foundationally false. Um, however, that being said, I think that sometimes these things can, can appear as apparently good explanations um, when in fact they're bad explanations. And I'll get into the reason why status is a bad explanation in a, in a tick other than that direct refutation. Um, but there are bad ideas. Like humans are creative and we come up with all sorts of ideas. However, most ideas are bad. <laughs> most ideas are really bad and humans act on their ideas. And if a whole bunch of people, if a society has a whole bunch of uh, anti-rational or violent or like bad ideas and nobody is criticizing those ideas, then bad things will happen. One of which <clears throat> might be like, for example, the incentive to gain status um, through like political revolution. The reason why status in particular, at least the way that Spandrel is um, proposing it, is that it's a bad explanation. It's easily variable or easily varied. You can explain anything. And when you can explain anything, it's irrefutable. Um, there's no way... I, I can take different, completely different human behaviors and twist the status explanation to account for that. So I can say, well, <clears throat> uh, the person who joins the Leninist vanguard is pursuing high status. But I can also say that the monk who completely rejects all of civilization and goes and lives in the cave is like, well, he's also pursuing high status. It's like, okay, well, what community does he have? Well, he doesn't have a community. He is only pursuing the status of his own mind. And so it's just this explanation that can be twisted to account for any behavior that you want, even if those behaviors um, are mutually like contradictory. So that's my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And e even within the paradigm of status, so I do think status is a 
major factor in how a lot of people behave. And I can agree with that. It's it's significant. It's when the you thing take it to a complete is he basically says that it's everything. Well, he he regards humans. So what I'm disagreeing with Jack is when I say reduction, what I mean is you're reducing human behaviour to a single like thing. Yeah. And essentially saying that humans are automatons, like you put a, a little status token in the little human automaton and it clicks its little, it clangs its symbols and it goes and pursues the status. Yeah. Whereas there are, like, there, there are other motivating factors for humans and yeah, humans yeah, aren't exactly. automata, but even if you just accept Spandrel's thesis that everything is driven by status, well... Plenty of people won't join the Bio-Leninist Party despite being low status in the current society because of the fear of losing status. Well, what if it goes wrong? Yeah. There are, there are a very large number of people who aren't necessarily doing that well in how our society is set up, but nonetheless support it because they, might not, they just might not think about it that much and try to achieve status through established pathways to high status within our society. So say working at a higher paying job to get more money as a proxy for status. Or they might they might be aware that they're not doing so well in our society and maybe these Marxist or Leninist ideas sound good, but mm. what if it goes wrong? I have a family, I've got kids, I can't risk that. So even within Spandrel's human automata pursuing only status paradigm, it doesn't work that well. Or you can basically just explain a whole bunch of things using the same descriptive model, many of which are at odds with each other. Yeah, which is why it's a bad explanation. But, you know, I do agree with you that, I mean, I think anybody who would disagree that status for many people is like a major driving factor. Okay, maybe not the monk, you know, going off and living in the cave. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. And what you know, he does. He does give like a caveat, which is that to some degree it's relative. That um, like in different communities, there's different. He sort of. I don't think he gives it enough credence, but he's he briefly mentions it somewhere. You know, like a good example would be like if you're in an an academic community that values like I don't know, like being very erudite, and you go and hang out with some rappers <laughs> or something, you, you might be low yeah. status in the rappers community, but if the rapper comes to your community, <laughs> uh, that he might not be high status. And so like it's, it's relative to like the social context, the status. Yeah. Status is very much relative. And he also talks about power a lot in, I think it's in the third essay and makes a similar mistake. So he seems to think of status as universal and not contextual. Which, as you said, status very much is contextual. And similarly, he talks that way about power, about how he says something about how power is absolute power or it's not power at, at all, which I just think is a pretty frivolous opinion to hold. The power is so contextual. I suppose Elon Musk is very powerful today. He has a lot of, say, he has a lot of US dollars, which... <laughs> Which yeah, which, which is a, a form of, of, of having a billion power of them he in has our society. But, yeah, but if he went back to a Stone Age civilization, that like, that power is just completely meaningless. The, the context has changed, and so that that power is now worthless. 
Yeah, and he also does similarly is in control of an army, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, the commander in chief is more powerful than him, but has less money. Just wait till all the Tesla cars gain self awareness and start <laughs> serving Elon Musk. <laughs> That's a, I th- yeah, I think. Um, so can we can can we sort of a. Uh, I personally, I don't know if I should have like gone so much into like my personal disagreement with it, but um, no, it's good. Let's take a, let's take his uh, starting premise as a given now, I guess. So that's what he's working from is yeah the start yeah. the status what he calls the uh, was it the module something module um, yeah the social something module that's hacked social calculus module yeah the social calculus hacks. model and the law of uh, uh, status yeah. So yeah, that's, that's and one of his starting premises. We can as- assume the the human automaton model of political affiliation that as soon as one person sees that they will be better served by one political movement or they're convinced that they'll be higher status, they just immediately support it. Yeah, which is why, again, yeah, he didn't say this directly, but I'm going to kind of fill in the gaps a little bit uh, and let me know if you think it's unreasonable to do this, but he kind of sees things as an all or nothing zero sum game between ideologies. Yeah, that was that and, was one of the criticisms I was going to bring up. Definitely, and the, he's not a particularly subtle thinker. No, but if he's thinking like this is a zero sum game and the people are automatons, they're just going to go to the ideology that offers the most status or the most delta in improvement. Uh, the greatest delta, then um, you can only really have one ideology winning that game <laughs> in a particular society. You know, um, if you yeah, sort of yeah. think about it from from his point of view. But yes, he's that's one thing that Jack notes very very much. He uh, is extremely binary and absolutist in his thinking. It's um. It's the mark of a, maybe I'll I'll, bring, I'll do an episode on this. It's it's mark of extremely poor thinking skills. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll look. I'll try to steal man. This yeah, steal man. Go on, go on. <laughs> look in the third essay of the the Bioluminous Triptych. He somewhat alludes to. So he he talks about the slow colonization of the institutions of a, a capitalist meritocratic system by bio-Leninists. So instead of launching a revolution, instead they'll just slowly take up positions within the educational system, the judiciary, the media, the entertainment industry, and over time start selling people these bio-Leninist ideas in which case, so he doesn't say this explicitly, I'm doing a bit of tea leaf reading, where maybe instead of some the human automaton saying, okay, well, there's this, this proposed system now offering me higher status, so I'm going to go support it. Maybe lower status people will see, see media produced by organizations that are now mostly staffed by bio-Leninists. They'll consume entertainment, again, produced by organizations mostly staffed by bio-Leninists. They might have gone through an educational system or their kids might be going through an educational system mostly staffed by bio-Leninists. And in accepting those views passively, 
maybe that also qualifies as as them supporting a system in which they will have higher status because those those bio-Leninist ideas being sold to them are appealing and so in some way they vote with their attention or their wallet or their acceptance. That's a steel man maybe shoehorning okay, let me, let me in a bit of up. subtlety. Let me back that up. Okay, so he, he has... a. There is one component which will make this make a little bit more sense, what Jack just said. The other term that he used for biological Leninism was dis- distributed Leninism or yeah, informal yeah. Leninism. So it's uh, type one Leninism, classic Russian formal. Um, and uh, I, I, in my head, I thought like explicit, exp- like explicit. Um, yeah. The canonical and pathway. organized, explicit and organized, and then type two Leninism is distributed, uh, diffuse, uh, not centrally organized, inexplicit, and he terms that because it's like happening quote unquote organically in society. That's why he called it biological, um, and in particular, he references this uh, this uh, Marxist thinker from uh, Italy, Gramsci. Uh, it's Italian, so maybe it's Gramsci. Um, there's this idea called the long march into the institutions, uh, which is I haven't read it, but from what I from what I could gl- glance at on like Wikipedia and poor, stuff, it's basically the idea of the episode. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Gramsci was like just this uh, sort of Marxist thinker, um, and uh, he came up with this idea of the long march into the institutions, which is essentially let's. Um, get into the education system. Let's get into the media. Let's get into like these, these parts of society and kind of ideologically uh, sort of seize these institutions. Yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's a little bit more context for what Jack just said. So I, I, while we're talking about this though, Jack, have we still manned him <laughs> or have we explained without criticizing um, uh, this particular point? Because I actually found this a really interesting point. Um, mm. Which thing, the slow march? The slow march and uh, the stuff about like, well, how do I put this? Uh, as we've said before in the podcast, um, perhaps he gets points for getting to an interesting conclusion, but the working yeah, was wrong. The working's a bit funny. And the conclusion is, hey, there's this like large scale distributed leftist um ideological like the spread of this ideology um which you can see i think it's reasonable to point that out like there's a lot of stuff going on you know the last few years like people who have gotten big reacting against what i guess people call woke now or postmodernism or critical race theory or neo-marxism like all these kind of like consolation stuff and then you've got the people like peterson or ben shapiro or you know the crazy ones like Uh, what's his name? Alex, whatever. Um, Alex so, Jones. Yeah, yeah. So there is this uh, thing about uh, it's like the ideological means of production, i.e. Our, um, our education system and the media in particular, seems to have mm-hmm. uh, in, in Western countries uh, had a significantly like left, quote-unquote, or progressive uh, in the American sense. Um, bent to it. Yeah, I think there is a growing ideological monoculture among 
monoculture. The, yeah. the employees of many institutions. I'm just not sure it's attributable to, to biological Leninism. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying you, you think that. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> uh, Spandrel's explanation for that is biological Leninism. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Whereas yeah, somebody yeah. else might say, I don't know, give some other like explanation for it. Um, yeah. And uh, what, what would I say? So what, so how did we get, so where are we now? We are in a society that is, you know, uh, increasingly run quote unquote by progressive leftists who have come up through the education system, taken over the media and getting into the courts. <laughs> how did we get here? That was biological Leninism. Will it continue? Spandrel says, yes, it will continue because of the inexorable laws of, uh, status and, uh, and where will it go? Yeah, well, it's going towards a full-blown uh, one-party state in the US. That would be like one-party uh, the state. Democrats because Cthulhu the always state. swims left. As Cthulhu says. always swims left. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a really good quote. That's what he says. Cthulhu. Yeah, that's quite a funny left. quote. <laughs> yeah. So his view. It's interesting. You you mentioning the development because he says in in authoritarian societies or classically Leninist societies, the leftward ratchet stops. So mm. once the, this Leninist vanguard party achieves power, it consolidates power, becomes a, an organ of absolute rule, and you don't get a further leftward drift because they're not trying to appeal to, to low-status people anymore. They just have power. And he says the problem in liberal societies is that liberalism struggles to form a coherent ruling coalition, which I disagree with. I think the liberal, the ruling coalitions in liberal societies are extremely durable, using ideas such as meritocracy to justify their continued existence, whether they actually warrant merit or not. But that, leaving that aside, we'll just assume he's right in saying that liberalism can't generate stable ruling groups those ruling groups rely on a degree of popular acceptance and so these political parties operating within a liberal system are always looking for new recruits and who are the best recruits and the most loyal ones well as we've mentioned before the lowest the lower the status the better the more loyal they'll be if you more promise them power yeah. so there's this constant he calls it a leftward ratchet in terms of what left mm. means, as with many people, not just even on the neo-reactionary right or the right, just in general the terms left and right are often so vague as to be meaningless beyond knowing how, if someone identifies as left or right, they might dress where they went to university or if they didn't go to university, the sorts of shows they might watch, the newspapers they might read. Yeah. Because, because of that constant need to appeal to more voters, the need to get more people into your party, there's this leftward ratchet that no one involved in the politics of a liberal society is really aware of. It's more this internal logic of the system itself to force mm. a leftward shift. And in Spandrel's telling, that leads to increased participation of women and particularly childless women 
mm. over 30 who aren't married in <laughs> politics because <laughs> he sees them as very low status. <laughs> Non-whites, people who aren't yep. hetero, Non-whites. trans people. Trans, yep. They're going to get Muslims. an increasing degree of representation because they, he sees them as biologically low status. So they're always going to be courted as, as political apparatchiks and, for whichever party. And when he says um, uh, biologically low power. status, he means like literally like less capable. Yeah, they're, they're just biologically inferior. And, uh, and uh. yeah, <laughs> and... <laughs> And it's it's interesting as well because this is his explanatory framework for why um, people who may not otherwise work together end up working together. And the example that he keeps on coming back to is mm. like, take Muslims, they hate gays, take gays, they're persecuted by Muslims. Why are they working together? Well, it's because they're jointly united under this bio-Leninist ideology pursuing higher status. Yeah, and that is that point is interesting. So why do you have, for example, within one left-wing party, a, a significant contingent who really, really support mass migration of low-skilled workers and at the same time a group of trade unionists who don't want masses of low-skilled workers coming in and diluting their bargaining power for higher wages? So that with as with many things in this essay he will touch on things that are real questions it's just he then offers an explanatory framework which is is kind of off also talking about his how the leftward ratchet stops in authoritarian societies i don't think that's correct because i th- i think it's in the second of the three essays he talks about how liberal societies use the um basically the biologically inferior in foreign countries as a fifth column to destabilize destabilize those countries from within so fifth column basically means a group of people within a society or within a group who are from the inside trying to destabilize that system it comes from the spanish civil war where it's attributed to either francisco franco or i think to one of his generals a telegram where they said that they had four columns of nationalists marching on Madrid and there was a fifth column within Madrid ready to rise up. And apparently that's, I think that's the etymology of the term fifth column. A clandestine group or faction of subversive agents who attempt to undermine a nation's solidarity by any means at their disposal. Thanks, Britannica. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. infiltrates. So- <laughs> Yeah, and then he uses the example of, in China, um, whenever you have someone agitating for for greater liberalism within China, it's invariably an unmarried woman without kids over 30 or a gay person or a non-Han Chinese person. And he uses this as evidence to support his claim that these are fifth columnists encouraged by bio-Leninist Western states. But this... This goes against his assertion that within classically Leninist societies, that leftward ratchet stops because presumably within those societies there will exist the the constituency for a bio-Leninist party, people who haven't been given higher status within a classically Leninist mm. society, mm. one which gives higher status to 
the working class, but not to the biologically inferior. So maybe I'm saying his his problem was he didn't go far enough. He didn't say that bioleninism is inevitable everywhere. There's no escape from bioleninism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, right. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> How about I read this quote yeah. and we can talk about this? Because this is this is an interesting quote in that I somewhat agree with parts of it. He says, The left always wins, but once they win, they become higher status. Come on, they got power. They try very hard to convince everyone that they're not really in power. No, the forces of reaction are lurking everywhere. We must keep on the struggle. 80% of the left's energy is in producing propaganda about how the right really runs everything. When the left had 90% tax rates, they still talked as if they were in Charles Dickens' world. After 60 years of feminism, affirmative action, and Jews in all resorts of power, the left of 2017 is obsessed with systemic racism, toxic masculinity, and anti-Semitism. Right. So, the part of this that I found interesting was that I do think, actually, progressive ideals, and when he says the left, I'm... I'm assuming he's referring to broadly progressivism, really have been dominant societally, at least for my whole life, mm. to, the, to the point where even very large companies, and I, I don't doubt, I don't believe for a second that, for example, Nike truly gives a fuck about any, any of the social causes that they're, they're advocating for, given that their shoes are made by borderline slaves in Bangladesh or whatever. Yeah. Or that that you know, every publication whose Twitter profile in the West has rainbow a rainbow flag for Pride Week but somehow doesn't have that in Russia and the Middle East. Even though I doubt those organisations truly care about progressive ideals, they've nonetheless identified that that is a dominant strain or the dominant strain in Western political thought and just the Western lifestyle, just how people behave in general, and that it's dominant enough that it's a market that they can advertise to and use to sell products. Similarly, when someone really falls from grace in politics or public life, it's because they've violated some progressive cause. It's they've, they've said something racist or sexist. And because I've grown up in a progressive society, I... I broadly agree with these things, but I still think it's interesting that despite the fact that progressivism really has been on a winning streak for decades, progressives on the whole act as if they're an oppressed minority for believing in progressivism and constantly talk about how they're under assault from all sides, that the right is this indomitable machine that's always oppressing them and preventing them from achieving what they want. I thought at least part of, of um, this guy's observation in that quote was true. Yeah, I, uh, that's really interesting because um, I, I kind of agree. Um, I don't necessarily agree that it's, that it's, uh, <laughs> that Cthulhu always swims left, you know. <laughs> that, <laughs> no, that I don't think it does. And I think that you could, you could have a rightward backlash. And yeah. I don't think it's 
Or you could just that have... That is uh, necessarily impossible by some rules of history that he seems to be laying out. And, and <laughs> we could have a situation where we just correct those errors in people's thinking <laughs> and we have neither a leftward swim nor a right backlash and we just move on to like better ideas you know like so there's yeah, that, or, that you know we could just turn into a full-blown full-blown like uh i don't know like anarchism or something like there's a whole bunch of potential alternatives uh i i, I just disagree with uh his inexorable the the idea that he can he can predict uh the future using these ideas so yeah it's particularly when <laughs> someone says that the future is certain yeah for not even these reasons, but for this reason, that there's this single factor that will will determine the shape of the future to the to the level of resolution that he's proposing as well. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. But on on the on the note of like us in our current political context, uh it seems as though <laughs> uh, who said this? There's a really funny quote. I can't remember who said this. Um uh the left has already won. They're just walking around shooting shooting the bodies or something like that. Yeah, they're <laughs> yeah, doing they're, a victory lap. Yeah, yeah, they're doing a victory lap. And, like, I don't even really agree with the idea of left and right, but even if I can see that characterization. Well, that's why I prefer to say progressivism rather than left because progressivism at least is a bit more specific about what people actually believe. Yeah, like if someone says to me, like social left, progressivism specifically yeah it's like what does left mean does it mean like a socially conservative socialist like george orwell does it mean like your most obnoxiously woke pseudonymous twitter user i don't know it's so yeah progressivism progressivism so they've won and they've done a lot of damage i think like in my opinion so i hmm, i know you said i was being idealistic before um and again, I'm not going to make claims about like uh, the that the world will become better by like that we will correct these errors in the ideological landscape in the world. So I'm not going to like claim <clears throat> some sort of deterministic prediction. However, I personally had ideas corrected in my head, and not as a, not mm. not when I was like younger, but like recently in the last like two years. Um, <clears throat> and it, it did require a lot of effort, and I read a lot, but like. I personally improved my thinking and I think that other people are capable of doing it as well. And that's why like, <laughs> I would actually say, you know, that's part of the reason why I do this podcast and I like doing it is because I think like when we have discussions like this, we're going through this error correction and stuff. I, I wonder whether or not like this is actually like food for thought, like for our listeners, you know, um, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, I had corrected in, in my head was, um, and I, I go on a lot, a lot about this, um, about the popper stuff. Not going to go on a popper rant. I promise. I'll just mention <laughs> <laughs> the open society, the society in which uh, there is a culture of criticism. So dissent is protected. There's freedom of speech, and authorities can be questioned without fear of retribution. Uh, that that's uh, that's like the source of essentially all the no well i don't want to be too absolutist in the way that i talk you know the the fact that the culture of criticism exists 
is the thing that allows us to do the error cor- correction and Im- improve our thinking, like whether it's science or ethics yeah. or whatever. And <clears throat> and the left, quote unquote, progressivism has been mounting an attack ideologically on the open society. Things like uh, the human rights uh, commissions in Western countries, they're, they're, they're kangaroo courts. So you can have things happen to you through human rights tribunals. They're not actually a part of the legal structure of like our country. They're kangaroo courts, extrajudiciary structures that uh, I would say are actually like fundamentally at odds with having like rule of law and, uh, and like an open society with institutions that <clears throat> respect like the sovereignty of the political process. Um, things like the court of public appeal, like on Twitter, like canceling people, that's, that's, a that's an attack on the open society, uh, extrajudiciary punishment, like, yeah, canceling people, like ruining somebody's, uh, career because of an allegation of whatever it might be means that that person doesn't get a chance to defend themselves and say like an actual court, they just have their career wrecked. And it might come out later that, hey, the allegation was false or there was more to the allegation than was originally claimed or whatever. And so we do actually have a very sophisticated uh, system that's been developed over hundreds of years in countries like Australia. Um, And I'm sure like, I don't know what your experience has been like in Czech, but in other parts of the world where there's a reason why we have these things, these sorts of institutions. And the fact that uh, people in the progressive side of politics do not respect those institutions and want to go outside of those institutions um, in Popper's language, they're enemies of the open society. And it's really, really dangerous <laughs> in my, in my estimation. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying that it's deterministically, we're going to end up in a bad place, but it is, it does need to be pointed out that it's actually really dangerous. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's a, and I'm, I'm not saying you're saying this, that, this aversion to the free speech of others is unique to elements of, of oh, progressivism. No. no, no, it's not it's, unique. I'd them. say it's it's really the the general posture of humanity to to respond negatively to to beliefs that contradict your own or expressed views yeah. that contradict your own beliefs. Yeah, that's right. It's just more prominent at the moment, at least in places like Australia. Or at least Melbourne and Sydney, it it does. Progressivism's hold wanes when you go more rurally, and argue, in the United you know, States, particularly California, coastal cities, yeah, Portland. That because particularly in the realms of media, education, and things, progressive ideals really are ascendant. And yeah. yes, people can point to oh well, there are there are people like say Rupert Murdoch who are. Uh, much more conservative who do have power in the media space, but that's a guy versus what really is becoming an ideological monoculture within the, the workforce of many media organizations, for example, but because, because Mm. progressivism is more prominent culturally at the moment, we can get the impression that that's the primary threat to the open society and to making people, not able or not willing to express their beliefs mm. publicly. Yeah. But I think that's more a function of that they they have the levers at the moment of power at the moment and it's a fairly 
I don't want to say natural in a normative sense because I, I think it's an impulse to be resisted, but it's a, a natural impulse for someone with power to push back on people who are challenging yeah. their beliefs, their worldview, and to an extent the basis for their power. Yes. Like the, if, um, uh, the, the open society. If, say, conservative the- Catholicism, as, as some of those uh, fairly silly people who are more on the online right who think that a viable, a viable path to political power is campaigning for Sabbath laws or something like that. Mm. Suppose they were in power, then we'd be complaining about the tradcaths not letting us say rude things about Jesus or something like that. Yeah, so to generalise what you're saying, essentially like <clears throat> my view has become, and let me, let me know if there's a mistake in what I'm about to say, but essentially assuming that you're a friend of the open society, at least uh, kind of broad strokes. Um, <clears throat> there might be sort of minor points to discuss, but uh, the open society is always under threat. It's always under threat yeah, from, yeah. from different enemies, different sides. Um, and if you map this back to other culturally and historically distinct open societies, the ones that Popper and Deutsch talk about are Athens, uh, but there was a there was Baghdad, there was Florence. Um, <clears throat> sorry, not Florence. Yeah, no, was it Venice or Florence? Um, and uh, and arguably Paris before the um, before the French Revolution. Maybe I don't know if you can make that case as strongly. Um, where basically, like different at different points of time, and certainly last century in the nineteen sort of. The early nineteen, sorry, yeah, the early nineteen hundreds, all the way up to the rise of Hitler in places like Germany, where different ideological attacks amounted against the open society, and in our current context, it seems as though sort of woke progressivism in the twenty tens and the and the twenty twenties seems to be the major force. It changes, and in the future. If uh, if uh, if uh, the progressivism stuff gets corrected, and all those people stop being silly, and they realise that uh, some of the mistakes in their thinking, there'll be another thing that'll come up, and there'll be another thing, and oh, there'll be another course. thing, and there'll be another thing, and it'll be different. Because an open society doesn't feel like a default state. No, for it's a not. Group of, a large group of people, and yeah. with progressivism, it is interesting. It's to an extent. It feels like a bit of French Revolution syndrome. So if listeners haven't read Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France, I highly recommend it. I haven't but read it. But one thing that struck me reading him talk about the, the French revolutionaries was this sense that they felt themselves to have discovered truths that nobody before in history had discovered. And from that vantage point of having discovered these universal truths that were correct in a as much as they abhorred religion in say a catholic garb these truths that they felt to be so self-evident that they assumed a religious character they felt that they could look back upon history and anyone who didn't hold these views as fundamentally wrong and morally reprehensible because they hadn't been blessed with this knowledge and therefore they felt they could just disregard the entire past is irrelevant to them and doing things like listening to the opinions of other people was useless because they discovered these universal truths that 
could not possibly be disputed because they were fundamentally correct. And it was funny reading someone writing about people having a, a revolution in 1789 and recognising that same, that same intellectual posture in much of, um, I guess you call them woke, woke people today, or, or the, the, more, the less reflective elements of the progressive movement today. Mm. I, so, okay. Uh, God damn. I, I, don't, I, just want, I don't want, I just want to be a popper parrot, because, but I, I can't help it. He's <laughs> just got really good ideas. You know, so again, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but he has a, I wish I had the quote because it's a really beautiful, it's actually quite a beautiful quote, but I'll try to paraphrase it, which is roughly, um, the belief in the, uh, undeniable self-evident truth and that we can access it is the uh, epistemological foundation of all forms of authoritarianism. And the basic idea is yeah, yeah. if you have access to the truth, then if somebody, and if it's, and in particular, if it's quote unquote self-evident, especially, then if somebody is opposing you, they, are, they must be opposing you because they're evil and it's your moral duty to uh, do something about that. Um, and it all almost inevitably involves justifications for violence. And the relationship between our knowledges, our, not knowledges, our knowledge and our relationship with epistemology is like a fundamental issue in politics um, and a fundamental issue in authoritarianism. I actually saw this talk tick, uh, tick, tick <laughs> <laughs> libs, <laughs> the font of all knowledge. <laughs> libs of TikTok. Fuck, she's so good, hey. <laughs> libs of TikTok. Um, Didn't she get doxxed by the Washington Post? Well, she's doxxed herself now. Um, she she just yeah. fucking owned it, man. She's a, she's a gangster. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, she doesn't care. Uh, I actually, I haven't seen that content. <laughs> she's really, I, um, she's really funny. She she posted this one uh, TikTok video of this. Uh, dude this like a uh, progressive um dude in whatever state i don't know oregon or something um saying we need to forcibly vaccinate people he's called he, he said we need to do it it might be violent <laughs> we need to pin them down we need to get the police and this needs to happen because they are compromising herd immunity and again even in something like this particular issue of like, in his eyes, it is a undeniable truth that uh, say whatever, the vaccine is something that needs to be done. And those people who are not doing it, either because they're stupid or dumb or evil or whatever, need to have this forced upon their body. And, and so this is always happening. Man. Yeah, I never really, I never... Looked into libs of TikTok. Yeah, it's really funny. For for similar reasons why I've never really looked into those groups about you know, dumbass conservatives. When I say conservative, I mean conservative in the American, not yeah. so much Burkean yeah, yeah, yeah. sense. And specifically American, because Americans do much better videos like this than other people. When I'm I'm all for hearing from 
the fringes, which is part of the animating principle of this podcast. But <laughs> I want a bit more detail, like Spandrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goes into detail on bioleanism, whereas when it's just a 30-second video of someone being a dumbass, it's like, well... <laughs> It's a dumbass. <laughs> it gets really hard really quickly. <laughs> mm. um, one of the things I did want to ask you about, I think we've we've uh, flogged that fucking horse, hey? You reckon? Is there anything else interesting yeah. to say about that? <laughs> yeah, we got so off topic. Uh, no, it's well, great. T- tangentially related. So this is why I'm so... Uh, it, an interesting thing about this idea of uh, judging ideas based on their content and their merit is mm. like even in somebody like uh spandrel who's who's like i i think this sounds like a an a person that i would not like to spend any time around <laughs> yeah not well, least of all say, because he thinks bluntly, he's i disagree with me. most of these <laughs> these posts <laughs> like he thinks i like i'm a i'm a biological degenerate who you know, so like he doesn't like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, it's a very pointed attack on you <laughs> because of um because of my genes. Um, but not I being a white man fully endorse all three of these essays. <laughs> I I love it. Um, <laughs> n- notwithstanding that, uh, you, sometimes if you try hard, even with somebody that you disagree with or dislike, you can find elements of truth. You know. And in a weird way, like he's these people, these neo reactionaries, they've picked up that there is this issue in society right now. I just fundamentally, I like the the solution. Their solution is is just as bad <laughs> as the problem they're trying to address. <laughs> so it is interesting with this. So it's a, I think it's a general rule of. Th- thumb it's good to understand that just because just because a person might be wrong some of the time or even a lot of the time mm. doesn't mean they're wrong all the time no there are there are still things to learn and i think just from this podcast because for about for over a year now we've both <laughs> been consistently exposed to views that we just don't share yeah for 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 a sustained period and yeah I think there's real value to that because. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I think there what is effect real has it had on to, you? I think it's really good to be exposed to not things that you disagree with. In that, okay, these people operating, say, talking to someone who votes for a party that you don't vote for, if you live in a democracy. Something like that is still probably actually more exposure to opposing views than many people have. Yeah. But that doesn't go far enough because that person's still presumably operating within the same political framework that you are. Mm. If you're both in a democracy, chances are you both believe in the ideas of liberal democracy. But Mm. I do think there is real value if you are someone like me who is a liberal Democrat in their first principles. Yeah. To read someone like Evola, for example, Mm. or to read someone like Alexander Dugan, who provides a sustained critique of beliefs or first principles that you have, Mm. but in a considered way, apart from anything else to demonstrate that intelligent people 
can believe different things to you. People don't disagree with you because they're stupid. They, like, they yeah. just have different ideas. And you might be wrong on some things. And it also forces you to really examine your own beliefs being shown a belief system that is just so alien to your own. Yeah. It, so I, I think does. that's, that's yeah. really useful. And doing something like reading Spandrel, you know, would I, do I want to be reading this all the time? No, I feel I did spend a few hours just flicking through his blog, so it wasn't repellent. But I feel like I've gotten basically everything there is to get from Spandrel. But yeah, still, you 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 look at a different perspective, and I think it's worth really trying to see the world from this perspective that of of an opposing view that you're reading, mm. and it it makes you either really consider your beliefs or maybe even change them if you just can't escape from some sort of problem you've found with your own first principles. Yeah, and especially if uh, if you go back to your first principles, like I've been having to, like doing this podcast has made me, <clears throat> because uh, this isn't the only stuff that we read for the podcast, right, listeners? Like we also read other stuff outside of the stuff that we're reading for the podcast. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> like Jack said, he read Edmund Burke last year. Um, <clears throat> uh, like... I think uh, you don't. How how do I put? You don't want your your views, or I don't want my views to be become sort of sclerotic, you know, like to just for me to just like yeah. read other people's point of views, react, and then double down on my previous like that kind of def defeats the purpose, right? <laughs> um, Go Hassan Abi. <laughs> um, however. It does provide the stimulus to to sharpen and refine one's or my first principles. So if I read, say, for example, um, you know, Osama bin Laden, that was a good example where he, he's he's just operating from such foundationally different um, principles to me that like reading that yeah. was just yeah. there's just completely orthogonal um, way of approaching <laughs> yeah, the world. Just a right angle. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that is useful. Um, I think another thing that's been actually quite useful. Uh, this is this is pretty off topic, but uh, we'll come back to it. In <laughs> it's just re removed that ick factor from hearing opinions that I don't share. How previously I had a bit of a reflexive, I, I wouldn't say revulsion, but it it was uncomfortable to hear opinions that were too different from my own. Whereas I've just burned the fuck out of that from this podcast. I'm so far past the point of, <laughs> of feeling uncomfortable for, um, when I'm exposed to very different viewpoints. And I think that's really useful because then you can analyse the concept, the, the concepts presented to you, the contents of a particular train of thought more on the basis of, of their merits. I won't say exclusively on the basis of that. I think... The, the passions are always going to find their way into reason. Uh, that's not like you know, Hume acknowledged that centuries ago. But you can at least reduce the impact of, of your own particular passions on evaluating whether someone's ideas are worth 
really considering or not. Yeah, 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 100%. I think the repulsion or disgust reflex, or it could even, you know, for some people might be more like a fear or hatred or aggression, like these kind of um, negative, negatively valenced emotions in response to points of view that are at odds with your own. Getting that under control is really important even just for the selfish purpose of being a better thinker, which is a, like a powerful tool, right? Um, unless you're living in, I don't know, a society that really, really, really only values like physical <laughs> attributes or whatever, like... If thinking in is, which case you're definitely listening to our podcast. <laughs> and, and, and you if you're hanging out with uh message. with uh what's that what's that fella um the big the big dude who just screams while he he, he lifts shit like two inches <laughs> the Greek the Greek oh fella. oh Kyriakos yeah. Grizzly if you're Kyriakos then maybe you can disregard what I'm about <laughs> to say but like improving <laughs> a marginal improvement in your thinking will get you a long way and suppressing those are. Uh, uh, negatively valence from emotions in response to opposing opinions uh, will help you improve your your thinking. Anyway, what's uh? We were talking about biological Leninism. I'm quite proud of us that in an episode on biological Leninism, we've just avo- for the most part avoided all of the sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and talked about ways ways to asymptotically approach the truth as human beings. <laughs> <laughs> that's good we've used we've used these essays as a jumping off point to something probably a bit more constructive than biological <laughs> leninism okay well if we bring it back on topic i've got a thing to talk about which is signaling he talks a lot about signaling in fact yeah. um that's one of his core tenants um he calls it uh signaling spirals and he took and uh it's it's a huge part of his whole philosophy do you want to yeah give us a Give us a, an intro to that topic. I'll see if I can find a quote, maybe. Was Signaling Spiral from the Bio-Leninism No, 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 no that's a separate it, No, I'm just talking about like, like more generally. His... It's a big part big part of his, his thinking, even in this book. I mean, even in this. In, in the context of progressivism, much of the Signaling Spiral seems to be this ratchet where there is social capital attached to one person demonstrating progressive orthodoxy. In public, mm. so even uh, this can be this can take a range of forms. Probably the most interesting form, actually, that I came across in a separate essay of his was where he was talking about how in our societies there is real social capital attached to to victimhood, yeah, and that carries with it a certain power. Actually, we should and talk when about that. someone. Yeah, when someone is thin-skinned or demonstratively thin-skinned, it's actually an expression of power because in complaining loudly in public to to some slight, real or perceived, on some level you're assuming that something will be done about it because you are complaining about it, which implies a power, which I found an interesting observation and not one that I'd, I'd disagree with, actually. But... Okay, so that, that's, as an aside, an example of 
some sort of social signal within a a progressivist environment that you can get social capital from. And then someone else, because status is relative, sees you ascendant status compared to them. So they're going to signal some sort of orthodoxy so that they either make back the status they lost by you advancing relative to them, or maybe they overtake you and gain more status. And there's no natural, there's no end point to this. It just continues ratcheting. I, I can Is that what from, you meant when you when you talked about signaling spirals? Oh uh, no, the, don't worry, let's just go with this. Um just I just want to talk about signaling in general, um, with regards to this idea. And and it is a mate I again, this is one of those things where I can see what he's talking about and why people in this neo reactionary movement uh are concerned with um with this issue of signaling because uh there is an argument to make and I I personally make this argument to myself that if you live in a, a Western country uh, like Australia or the US or whatever, it is true that there are issues. Some of those issues were caused by uh, historical injustices against different peoples, communities, ancestral communities, you know, for example, like First Nations peoples or like slave trade with, you know, Africans or whatever, um, or like the treatment of uh, India, like under <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the British occupation of India. Like there's all these issues, right? Um, and on a very, an unsophisticated level, no, I shouldn't say unsophisticated. Um, if you don't, if you don't dig deep into what's happening in the world to try to understand, I can understand why people kind of stop there and they go into like victim mentality. And in, in the nth degree, people who don't think critically about it become really anti-Western. I think anti-Western stuff has been, <clears throat> you, know, uh, you know, some people would say it's been on the rise of late and uh like internal the fifth column <laughs> so to speak of western citizens being anti-western um <clears throat> but the error in those people's thinking is that we live in that part of the world where now those people are able to participate in the reform of the society and correct the errors. Whereas it is not the case that there are other societies like that in the world currently, nor historically. There's been plenty of other civilizations. You know, a really <laughs> interesting one, it was like the Persian Empire. Man, like they treated people horribly. <laughs> and there was never any point at which like whatever conquered uh ethnic group <laughs> um got to you know in in our case so like uh, in an indigenous australian's case it, you know it's taken like quite a while it's taken like <clears throat> a couple hundred years but you know now these days like indigenous people are like participating in the political process and like have a voice and have a say and that is an anom that's an anomaly that's a that's a that's a historical anomaly to have that sort of society Whereas, like for example, in India, the uh, the Aboriginal people, like the 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 untouchables, 
the people at the bottom of the caste system, uh, as far as I understand, and I might be wrong about this, uh, but they they were essentially like the indigenous peoples before the the people who are like kind of like the Vedic uh, ethnic groups, uh, like who are in the upper caste, um, sort of came down <clears throat> from the northern part of the continent, um, and that happened three thousand years ago. So for like thousands of years, there's been this caste system that subjugated a particular ethnic minority. And there was never a point until the British colonized them that that was ever even questioned as an issue. So mm. like the, the complete like denial and uh, absolutist victim mentality of people in the West saying that like the West is like inherently evil or corrupt and needs to be, we need to revolt against it, turn over the system. They don't understand that we're in the part of the world that is not completely systemically corrupt. <laughs> We're in the part of the world where the people who have been historically subjugated can actually reform the system. It might take a very long time and a lot of work, but it can happen. Yeah, I think a and lot of this- it can happen this, peacefully. Yeah, this, um, so I, I should distinguish, uh, you did as well, between anti-Western sentiments outside the West. Yes. So I suppose you're anti-Western in Iraq yeah. or Syria. I think, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And within the West, it strikes me that much of the that self-flagellation within the West about how the West is uniquely terrible That's is signaling. probably within progressive societies the last bastion of socially acceptable white supremacy because... It tends to be white people, white university educated people telling a story or a historical narrative where basically the only actors with any sort of agency are white people That's who are the ones point. inflicting misery upon everybody else who otherwise wouldn't, re like to be blunt, otherwise it wouldn't just behave like human beings do. Like human beings just can get violent. Human beings just well, can just get false. xenophobic. It's just false to characterize. It's just like Europeans it's just like that. Like yeah. uh, you know, a really good example is just like who were the Europeans doing the slave trade with? They were doing it with Africans. Like chattel slavery out of Africa, the Europeans bought the slaves off African. Uh, like kingdoms there's different like africa is an extremely ethnically heterogeneous place there's like heaps of ethnic groups and there's, there's a long history of different like peoples in africa subjugating and enslaving one another <laughs> so, so slavery yeah. is not like a uniquely european thing or something like that what is uniquely western is the fact that we abolished the fucking slavery. <laughs> That's what's uniquely yeah. Western. <laughs> and so what I but find it's, really- it's this Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's this interesting worldview wherein in the name of, of anti-racism, you, you construct this story where the, you only are afforded moral agency if you're white. Yeah. To yeah. be blunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, is like, self-contradictory like is just it's completely I, ridiculous. i think it's morally reprehensible it is but yeah it's it's the same thing you see with women right it's like there's an aspect of some parts of feminism that just um basically characterize women as uh as not having any agency in their life and 
yeah, you can say, oh, there's been issues with like the treatment of women over the course of like history, and still, still, there still is. Except the the thing is, how do I put this? Like, I'm a Valerie Solanas fan. <laughs> hmm. I, I, okay, I I'm not going to finish that thought. I w- I will just say briefly that I draw a strong distinction between people who live in the West and who are anti-Western and people who do not live in the West and who are anti-Western. And the reason why it's such an important distinction is, say, take somebody like Osama bin Laden. Like, he wasn't fortunate enough to grow up in a part of the world where he was, like, allowed to think for himself. You know? And people like Salman Rushdie... The reason why somebody like Salman Rushdie is such an interesting person is because he got the fuck out, <laughs> you know. And other and other people like the the person who uh, uh what was that a uh, Muslim woman? Uh, she wrote apostate. Um, uh, uh, Ayan Hersi. Yeah, Hersi Ali. Yeah, Ayan like Hersi Ali. Like they're interesting because they started off not being in an open society, and they got out and they were able to like figure out what was going on and you know like they are able to like engage with their community of origin at a very like sophisticated level because of that sort of shared cultural background and that sort of stuff osama bin laden didn't go in the case case of osama bin laden i don't think he hated the west purely because he was not allowed to think otherwise i think no Western Western behaviour in the area he considered his home was was pretty provocative. I'm not saying this to justify no, no. 9/11 what, what Deutsch's explanation would be his hatred of the West was not totally unfounded. Well, he was, sorry, I should say it wasn't that he wasn't allowed to think for himself. It's that uh, what I mean, it's kind of that's a little bit true. You know, it's very like authoritarian culture, but like, uh, but that. Say like Ayan Hershey Ali and Osama bin Laden both have this human capability to be creative, which is what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast. One of them use that creative capacity to um, question the authoritative um, knowledge and that sort of stuff. And one of them use that creativity to actually amplify the authoritarianism and to recapitulate <laughs> and actually uh, more strongly embody those ideas than his, uh, his, um, his contemporaries. Like, he went further than the other people in that direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I guess ultimately it depends on what you're trying to optimise for. This is problem solving, so he, he had a... You know, I, I don't think that's a universal... Good. It le- it consistently leads to results that I like, probably given my upbringing. But oh no, what I'm saying is society, he was trying to problem solve. A, a tool. He failed. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't come up with the solution yeah. to the problem. Yeah, but he was trying to solve problems for him in his life. That he things that he yeah he was problems. trying to problem solve. Um. So my my only point <laughs> yeah my only point was that I I there's a special place in hell for people in the West who hate the West. 
I don't know. I think you can. I think you can definitely <laughs> criticize the West, but there's a certain type of person <laughs> who seems become to become really take, black and white. Am I thinking? <laughs> yeah, who seems who seems to consider themselves uniquely brilliant because whenever whenever they'll they'll meet someone who's I don't know, like they'll meet a Czech person who's proud of being Czech, and they'll proudly tell that person about the slave trade and assume that because a Czech person's white. Their ancestors had extensive slave colonies or something like that. Or they'll present a vision of the world that the West is this uniquely bad place. But this individual telling you this is uniquely good because despite the fact that they are Western, they recognise this. And those sort of people are weasels. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the ability to drop this like nuke on a, on a conversation or whatever. Mm. And... Uh, you know, a normal, like not normal, but like a reasonably polite person won't tell that person who's doing that status signaling thing to fuck off, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's a completely um, antisocial way to have a conversation with another person, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think sociability is the intended purpose. No, 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 no. <laughs> of those sort of techniques. So we agree with Spandrel about this being a fucking issue. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing with Spandrel. More broadly speaking, really, most, most of the stuff we read on this podcast, to varying extents, so this doesn't apply to Call of the Crocodile, but <laughs> like most of this stuff, they will, like they're writing in response to something. Mm. They've seen a problem that they feel strongly enough about to, as you said about Osama Bin Laden, they're trying to problem solve. Like Spandrel's trying to problem solve. And to an extent, he has identified a, a problem or a cluster of problems. Mm. It's just his explanatory model for those problems is, I think, a bit cuckoo. It's false. Yeah, he has a false explanation. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> on, on, on that note, uh, okay, are there... Uh, oh, sorry. Bell, um, do you want to uh, just give me a tip? All right, while well, Levi's getting the door, I would just say he brings up this idea of the invisible hand of power. So the invisible hand is a concept... Uh, to my knowledge, first put forward by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, although, as with many of these things, it might have been said earlier and it's just been erroneously attributed to him. However, I've read The Wealth of Nations and I have seen him use the term invisible hand to describe how how higher-order economic effects can come about, a, a general increase in wealth, for example, through the the action of multiple individuals in a decentralized manner all pursuing their own personal self-interest. It leads to, to economic emergent phenomena as if by an invisible hand or as if directed by an invisible hand. And he talks about the invisible hand of power, how the, the analogy or the parallel he draws between Adam Smith's notion of an economic invisible hand and the invisible hand of power isn't perfect it's a bit shaky but he basically says that if there is available power to be grabbed it will be grabbed not actually totally sold on the call, calling that the invisible hand but i suppose by invoking adam smith it makes him sound more erudite and so he'll do that so if there is power available it will be grabbed i think broadly speaking yeah that's that's true and he says that this applies for individuals just as much as it, impl- as it applies to organisations, perhaps even more so 
for an organization than an individual. And basically through this, I only bring it up because this this feeds into his idea of the inevitable leftward ratchet. So this invisible hand of power is what is driving political parties to seek out the biologically inferior members of society to to staff these parties because these members of society will be all the more loyal for their biological inferiority. What else? What else do we have? So can I can I just say, sorry I uh, I was able to listen to you because I had my headphones in. Whilst oh yeah, I, yeah, whilst cool. I was uh, grabbing my book. Um, <clears throat> book just arrived in the mail. Uh, uh, thanks, Uncle Jeff. Um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> Papa Jeff. <laughs> The the key the key part of that Adam Smith idea, and you actually see uh, as as a Bitcoin person, uh, one of my criticisms of the Bitcoiners as the maxis, the maxis, <laughs> is uh, unfortunately even Breedlove does this as well. Um, is uh, is uh, the key word in the phrase about the invisible hand is actually as if. The the immediately beforehand, yeah, as if by, as an, if by an invisible hand. hand, Smith was using an analogy. <laughs> he he was not saying yeah. there is. It's, a, it's metaphorical. It's a metaphor. It's not, it's not physically there. It, what he's saying is, uh, I prefer the way that Hayek puts it. Hayek puts it that uh, we have an emergent social order that, much like uh, a design designoid object, like a living organism, an, a living organism. <clears throat> the uh, the knowledge to create that organism's body has evolved over the course of a very long time, and it is a false theory to say that it is designed by an external um, consciousness. It has yeah the appearance of design after the course of a long, long, long process of natural selection. Almost analogously, the complex economic system in which we live appears as though it has some sort of design to it. But again, that's because of a long, complex history of selective processes, such as like the market processes, selective process. Businesses go out of businesses. Mm. If they don't do well, the businesses succeed, scale up, you know, that sort of stuff. So we have an emergent social order. It appears as though it is designed. It is not designed. <laughs> it is not engineered. Yeah. Yeah, to that point, in quite simplistic terms, really, if something, the, the phenomena which persist, persist, like the, the phenomena which are still present are those which have been able to persist until now. <laughs> Are those ones that were fit for purpose? So, so the issue is like design. Something that is designed well is fit for purpose. But the thing is, something that has survived through a selective process is also fit for purpose. However, it is fit for purpose because all the ones that were all the variations that were not fit for purpose were killed off. So, at the end of the selective process, after many iterations, the thing that's left over has the appearance of being designed. Because it is fit for purpose, but there's it, this is all we're saying is that there's is essentially that there's at least two different mechanisms by which an object can become fit for purpose. One is a conscious, like teleological, 
we designed it, and the other one is iterative selection. What else do we have to say about Spandrel? Um, because we we keep going way off, like not not totally off topic. And I think these these conversations are good, but I wanted to talk about how, how much more of of Spandrel is there. Um. Okay, so a mi- a minor topic and a a, a more <clears throat> uh major topic. The more minor one is uh, he commits this fallacy called uh the Moloch <laughs> the Moloch fallacy. Uh, Moloch, mm. um, Moloch, God, I think. Uh, yeah, Moloch. Isn't they got a Canaanite god embodiment of violence or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> uh, the Moloch fallacy is t- takes roughly this form. There is some force which we'll call the Moloch, that uh, imposes its will upon the people. And the people act as automatons in accordance to the will of the Moloch. And this, uh, this, um, uh, this, uh, this mistake comes up all the time. Uh, one, one example is like... Um, the Moloch of uh, people, uh, like the planet will inevitably be destroyed by late-stage capitalism because people are on a local level doing what's in their self-interest, but then that aggregates up into things that are globally destructive. And that cannot get that that uh, positive feedback loop cannot be broken because the individual incentives are aligned to keep on doing that indefinitely. And the Moloch there being, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like some sort of a sort of pseudoscientific theory about <clears throat> economic incentives and quote unquote rational behavior. Uh, the mm. problem with all Moloch theories is that they treat people as automatons reacting deterministically to predefined predictable uh, criteria um, and as I've said so many times in this particular podcast about creativity, that's just that's just false. <laughs> One, the environment changes and people respond to the environment. And two, when people identify a problem, they can fix it. You know, a really good example is like a people, a yeah. bunch of people think that there's a big issue with like, uh, say, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So they're mobilizing billions and billions of dollars to try and like change the energy system. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. In this particular case, his Moloch. I think, correct me. Well, one, firstly, <laughs> what do you think of that, Jack? The idea of the Moloch. Yeah, I think I, I think applying that to Spandrel is not unreasonable. It ba- basically saying that it's, e- it's even more basic than that. How he argues, and this is quite common for people that we cover on the podcast, is that he proposes a very simplified world model and the agents within that simplified world model have a very limited set of responses to any sort of stimulus and a set of responses that don't, don't necessarily correspond to the exterior world. Yeah. And within that model, like that very specifically established model, 
you can observe the sort of outcomes that serve as evidence for whatever the author is trying to tell you. Yeah. And it can it might be internally consistent. However, the wheels fall off when the author then claims explicitly or implicitly that this particular model corresponds to the outside world. Yeah. And so with with the Moloch example you you used previously of late stage capitalism whatever that means. <laughs> Inevitably, it's such it's it's one of those. Sorry, it's another digression. One of those bullshit terms that doesn't mean anything. It's it's a mood. It contains nothing intellectually. Uh, it's just like your bad mood is not an intellectual current. Like when someone says late stage capitalism, I kind of have a feeling for what they mean, or more, perhaps more accurately, I. I have some sort of intuition about how they feel, but not necessarily what they're thinking. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. but yeah, like the, the Moloch in that situation exists because someone has created this super simplified model, run, basically run the model and it's, give, it's spat out the result that they like that supports their argument. And so they say, okay, see here, this is, this is true. My model says so. <laughs> it's... It's making a bad model of the world, which which gives a, a bullshit answer that you want it to give. In the first place, <laughs> it's like you've, you've yeah, finally yeah. found a mechanism by which you can um, argue the thing that no, you I feel like believe. I took your question and just ran in the opposite direction with it. No, no, it's great. It's fine. Um, I just think that he has a Moloch. He has a Moloch. He has his, yeah. his, entire, his entire philosophy is, is there's this leftist Moloch. And he's kind of like, yep. um, he's just giving the mechanism for it. And uh, the, the, thi- the thing is with the Moloch stuff and in particular with Spandrel's ideas is like he, what he is doing is he is creating an explanation of why the world is the way it is and then making deductive predictions based on that explanation. However, he does not attribute the ability to do that to other people. And he attributes only the ability to seek status to other people. Yes. <laughs> and he doesn't think that maybe people are acting the way they are because they too have got explanations of the world and are creating deductive predictions based mm. on that and uh, normative inferences about how they should behave, and it's just that those other people have different explanations of the world than he does. Yeah, yeah, I would say more likely, the most likely explanation is that this is the one guy with any sort of intellectual agency in human history, and this is why these sorts of and people always we've just, just we've just stumbled across his blog. These people always just stink of arrogance. These are these people. Yeah, that that's yeah. something that does put me off any thinker when they. They get a bit too arrogant. Well, I, I have not yet come across a uh, historicist, and I, I think there's like a modern like historicist uh, the interpretation of the word historicist. So I apologise if you're a historian or historicist, and this is not <laughs> what what you mean. But like at least those people who are trying to find quote unquote laws about human nature or about historical development, and then like they. 
Marx, Evola, this motherfucker, like they they all have this. Yeah, I don't know what Spengler does. Spengler, it. like, just there's just this this fucking arrogance to it, um, mm. and the arrogance is just made worse by the fact that they're just wrong. <laughs> they get shit wrong. <laughs> well, it means that it it becomes harder to to really do the intellectually valuable thing of take things from those particular worldviews that seem to be correct. So, for example, with Marx, I'm far from a Marxist. Yeah. But at least in terms of his, some of his descriptions of the world and some predictions are not outrageous. So No, they're interesting. The, the idea that you say the internal logic of standardised parts, mm. standardised jobs... And each person working on, say, a single object in a, mm. in a process. So you, I'm the one who attaches wheels to cars rather than someone who makes a whole car. He said that the internal logic of that could lead to people becoming, I think in his, his terminology, fleshy cogs. Yeah, alienated from their work. And right? becoming <laughs> alienated from their labour. And I think that actually yeah, that <laughs> does describe quite a bit of the 21st century economy in the West. Like he... He said plenty of things that were, I think, fairly reasonable or have at least he's made predictions which actually were reasonably accurate. And, and, he, and he pointed but, out things like... But he then, he then proposes a bunch of solutions which I yeah. think are completely unhelpful. And this is but why like, things can Back to your point, right. the issue is when someone's too arrogant, it just becomes harder, at least for me, temperamentally, it becomes harder to acknowledge, okay, they're being arrogant, they're wrong a bunch of the time, but they, they're still making some points that are... It makes it really hard. I sensible find it really hard. Um, yeah, and that's something in, that I have to fight against in myself. Yeah, because... That when someone's being too much of a jerk to just think, okay, fuck you, I'm not going to listen to anything you say. So, uh, another minor point in Spang... In a, sorry, not Spangler, in... A, this guy, what's his name again? In Bioluminism guy. Bloody Spandrel. Shovel Land. Spandrel is a... Uh, Goes by Spandrel or Bloody Shovel. <laughs> is that uh, he, um, he constantly does this. He assumes the homogeneity in particular of the quote-unquote ruling class. And I, I don't know if yeah, you've got any quotes yes. about this, but uh, let me see if I if I, I probably have here. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, While you look Montesquieu for, must, oh, yeah, oh, go for it. Um, Montesquieu must have thought himself very smart saying that legislators, bureaucrats, and judges should be independent and in constant conflict. Well, yeah, but where do they send their kids to school? To the very same places. And pray tell, share, Marquis, how do you plan on having those judges and bureaucrats and legislators and teachers and journalists and bankers and industrialists who have all grown up together, shared a secluded life as a unified ruling class? How the hell are you going to make <clears throat> them check and balance each other? That can't work. And it isn't working. They marry each other and send their kids <clears throat> to the same schools. And yeah, they'll do some show and play politics theater or kabuki, as the Americans like to say for some reason. Uh, but in the end, they're an endogamic ruling class and they know it. And endogamic uh, is just like a social structure where you sort of like um, marry within a particular, like <clears throat> you marry within a particular social group. Um, <clears throat> so isn't I, I think endogamy 
It describes plants that can pollinate themselves or something. Yeah, like but that. in the uh, in the context of a. Uh, uh, no, no, no. He's, and, and, he's using endogamy. It he's saying our ruling class of plants is uh, is the practice of marrying within a specific social group. Uh, so then, <laughs> or it could be the uh, uh, biological interpretation. I like my way better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As opposed to ex exogamous marriage. Yeah, yeah. I, I would prefer to think that we're ruled by ants. <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of ants, <laughs> uh, incestuous ant, entish class, uh, the British family, <laughs> getting more and more progressive. <laughs> yeah, so he like this is just one of those things. And <laughs> when I was reading this, I was like, how much time does this person spend with other people? And then. <laughs> and then this guy is a. This guy spends a lot of time on Urban, so I'm going to go ahead and say probably not much. And then, in his if you're interview, too interested in Urban and cryptocurrency, you probably don't Urban. spend that much time around. <laughs> hey, shut the fuck up, man! <laughs> fuck you, man! <laughs> no, no, uh, I don't. Look, I don't spend any time. I, with I, I like crypto, and I'm interested in Urban, so maybe I'll become a social worker. Hey, hey, he, he, um. In his in in his interview, the 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 fourth part of uh of this series on bioleninism, he literally says that he says, "Yeah, I don't really spend that much time with other people." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, that make that makes sense because <laughs> the man's got <laughs> self knowledge. Hey, is the beginning of all knowledge." So he um, I don't know what to say. Like, I've spent enough time around people from different social classes. In Australia, including like what some would consider like reasonably elite, based just because of like my educational opportunities, and uh, and it's it's just not the case that they're homogenous, like, <laughs> and <laughs> and that they all get along and it's all fucking buddy buddy. If you're from Melbourne, like the f one of the first things you know is that like uh, you have this like big divide just between like the different private schools <laughs> and i like i personally like think it's it's a kind of a weird thing but it's it's dumb. it's really dumb but it's just okay so you went to school uh, it also uh, exists scotch and grammar and it's, it's, you know in, so in in fucking uh like scotch college and and uh <clears throat> and uh melbourne grammar melbourne grammar uh in melbourne and then they end up going to melbourne uni and they don't interact with each other <laughs> so, or they, or they, they go to one college instead of another college. It's just like, it's fucking dumb. Um, but it is just factually not true that all these people just hang out with one another. I think, uh, this idea is such a bad idea, but it also comes up in other, in other, um, sociological analyses, but from the opposite perspective, we've got this neo reactionary person saying, this is what's happening, but then Marx made similar arguments about the uh, social homogeneity of the bourgeoisie. <laughs> and you can see straight yeah. off the bat, the fact that you can use the same reasoning to justify mutually exclusive claims shows that that is a bad explanation. Yeah. Well, there are a few things at work here. So one, I would say that just the, the human impulse to tribalize is working <laughs> against spandrel here in that like you can take people from the same backgrounds who've had the same educational experiences who've had just about everything in common 
and they will form different groups. Like just humans just love tribalizing <laughs> over stuff. I would also okay, so to steel man this argument. Yeah. Good. Sorry, I'm saying okay, so they all go to the same they all go to the same schools, they all consume the same media, they all get the same news, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So mm-hmm. that's shaping their views in some fundamental mm-hmm. way. And okay, maybe members of an elite class in a society they might disagree on certain things, but maybe they'll agree on fundamental things. So like in a democracy... Or some stupid shit. <laughs> yeah, in a democracy, say, the elites, say, the members of an elite group who went to Melbourne University or Sydney Uni or something like that, most likely by virtue of the fact that they grew up in Australia and went through the Australian education system, yeah. they're not going to be monarchists or they're not going to be fascists. No, they might so, be monarchists. I know plenty of young like people our age. Yeah, actually, look, it depends. <laughs> but they're not going to be Nazis. Depends. <laughs> yeah, okay, maybe. Yeah, something, something. Yeah, actually, yeah, monarchist. When I say monarchist, I don't mean that like Australians read gossip newspapers about our queen <laughs> or now our king. Yeah, Women's Charles. Weekly with uh, the, the Prince Prince Charles. Yeah, Women's Weekly. Private. Sorry, Prince Harry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More in vogue these days. <laughs> but... I, like I mean, more like crypto as the, the Australian Parliament should be dissolved and replaced with Tony Abbott, King, King Tony Abbott, King Hitler, Tony Abbott, King Shirt Front Vladimir Putin, Tony Abbott. Yeah, so that, that I imagine that's going to be a minority position, despite the fact that it is objectively the correct position. <laughs> We okay, Jack and I. What we want is we want a uh, um, a. A permanent, a permanent monarchy of the abbots installed. We want cryptocurrencies <laughs> and we want nuclear warheads. <laughs> so we are crypto nuclear monarchists, <laughs> but neo yeah, yeah, neo yeah, monarchists. Yeah. That's what we are. We don't want any of that like homeland British shit. We want abbots. We want Tony Abbots and his crew. <laughs> we want a cloned series of Tony Abbots. <laughs> So you never run out of Tony Abbott. We actually have an eternal leader. We don't even like take his his child his offspring. We just fucking clone him. <laughs> Do you reckon it'd be worth just having one Tony Abbott ruling all the time, or if you just had a network of say a thousand Tony Abbotts? Well, it, the or, thing is, and, and just just the amount of emergent Tony Abbott phenomena that could arise from that. We need to, to replace for, for new directions in leading the country. We need to replace. So we can get rid of the parliament, of course, right? Uh, well, you, obviously, yeah, but we still need like a legislator, legislation, legislature, and and a bureaucracy. But we should just replace what if everybody Tony in Abbott there is just... with the Tony Abbott. <laughs> All high court judges are Tony. Yeah. Abbotts. So what if we All even keep elections? Are Tony but every single seat is is contested is Tony between Abbott. two Tony Abbotts. <laughs> And, Tony Abbott versus Tony and, Abbott. And it's just decided by whoever shirt fronts the other one harder. <laughs> yeah, it's a swimming race. It's just a swimming race, followed by a boxing match. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, better American, li- or just all our non-Australian listeners are really pleased about this. <laughs> uh, what a character. Um, anyway, yeah, so the, the decentralised Tony Abbott monarchist nukes and Bitcoin party. <laughs> That's us. Vote for us in the next election. Uh, this is our platform. And we just as, as soon as we win power, this we're just gonna we're just gonna step down and party. install Tony Abbott. 
the Tony Abbott hive mind. <laughs> uh, so yeah, good. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah, it's fucking fair. See, Spandrel just didn't predict that that's where the world was going. He didn't foresee the decentralized Tony Abbott, <laughs> or the Tony Abbott Plex monarch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the hive mind. Um, Tony Abbott hive mind. Fan fucking fantastic. Just totally missed it. So let me see. We've got. Um, I think we need to come up with a, a a system of understanding history that describes why this is a, a, an inevitability, a, a historical necessity, <laughs> an inexorable law yeah. of history that that the world is just ruled by a ruling Cthulhu class of Tony always Abbott. Swim left. Cthulhu always <laughs> always Cthulhu swims always swims towards Tony, Tony Abbott. Abbott through Manly Beach. <laughs> In fact, it turns out that Cthulhu is Tony Abbott. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listeners, if somebody can jump on the Discord and post in the memes channel, uh, the memes channel is called um, uh, I Was Born in the Dankness. I Was Born in the Dankness. If you can go on there and send us a a picture of a a head head of Cthulhu on uh, that picture from Tony Abbott running in his uh, budgie smugglers up Manly Beach, that would be fantastic. Tony Abbott's pretty jacked. Yeah, he was back in the day. I don't obviously know what he's like now. I don't spend my time admiring his chiseled abs no, let's okay no i want to have a look at what tony abbott but he was like back shirtless. in yeah when he was in prime minister he was in good shape tony abbott shirtless i'm pretty sure he was like 23 uh, was he an elite athlete maybe not an elite athlete but he was like fairly high level athlete oh he was okay there's a website called hottest heads of state which has a bunch of pictures of tony abbott really is he attractive <laughs> <laughs> yeah a bunch, a, a bunch of pictures of him in the surf A pretty good delt. <laughs> Myron. Myron. Myron, uh, future King Abbott. A former prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> not, not admiring his like, political contributions to the country. Admiring his delts. <laughs> his delts. <laughs> Ziz would be proud of us right now. Ziz is making a comeback, like not physically, <laughs> but <laughs> he's reincarnating later. Thanks for clarifying that, Jack. <laughs> and, and, and new ge- a new generation of online fitness degenerates have discovered Ziz. <laughs> it just becomes like this cycle, like every 10 years, Ziz comes back. As People like another Ziz. generation of 18-year-olds discover the gym. <laughs> Go onto YouTube, discover discover hard style and sizz. <laughs> anyway, I feel, I feel like if we're discussing Ziz and Tony Abbott's delts, then we're probably reaching the end of our conversation on biolatinism. One last no no, there's, there's a couple fast class point. Last point. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. The other topic was uh Genetic reductionism. Yes, this is fairly central to his thesis. This is incredibly central to his thesis. <laughs> There's a lot of central points, and uh, it's, ta- it's taken us a while to get to this one. Um, genetic reductionism, or determinism, is he's basically just saying uh, a particular type of person is should quote unquote naturally be in a certain part of the social hierarchy because uh, they're genetically determined to be like, say, incompetent or like not as good at things as in particular, like in his, in his opinion, 
white men. Um, so I've got a quote, and he relates this to like status and stuff. Um, <clears throat> quote, there will always be low status people because there's always biology. Some people are tall, some people are short, some look good, some are pretty ugly. Some are thin and some are fat. fat. Some are pleasant, some are annoying. Some are cool and some are awkward. Some are smart and some are dumb. Some make good choices, some make bad choices. Some are law-abiding and some are criminally inclined. The latter <coughs> of each pair is going to be low status anywhere on earth, even in Soviet communism under Commander Trotsky. Some people just suck. That's the way genes work. Yep. Is that the way genes work, Jack? So the thing is... <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the thing with this is, like, there were there are glints of truth amid like, just things which aren't true, which is why... Yeah. Well, which is why you have to think, hmm. It, like, like with most things he says, there will be elements which are true. So for certain roles in society just are biologically determined. Like, I'm not going to be a basketball player. I'm 5'10". It's just not happening. But he, he'll take certain more concrete examples like that and then from that extrapolate, uh, if you're a woman, you can't lead. Or if you're not white, then you're like you're you don't belong in an intellectual job or something like that. Mm. Yeah, he does. Uh, what was it? He did. He did actually. I forget which essay it was in. He mentioned that. So the the patriarchy exists because it's natural, and he does this thing of conflating natural with something being correct, which. Given that I'm not totally sure on what basis any of my beliefs really rest, I'm still trying to think that through. Um, I can't definitively say it's false, but I don't think that something happening commonly in nature just makes it right. But he, he says, okay, so throughout history, any society where there's a group of white men, the white men have dominated. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not sure that's true historically, but like just for the purposes of this, we'll just accept that and say fine. And he says, okay, so therefore it's natural and to an extent right that the white patriarchy exists. And then he goes on to acknowledge there are some men who are just not very talented, who do get some residual prestige or status mm. from that. And no, that's not right, but... Like, that's just a side effect of the natural way and therefore the right way of things, that you will get the odd white guy who's not particularly clever but has that halo effect of being white, so he'll, he'll get more status in society. Hmm. Well, I don't know, like maybe not these days, man. It's very contextual. Yeah. So he does, he does this thing, and I see a lot of, a lot of progressives do it similarly, where... I think I brought this up earlier because they see that some person or some group has status, prestige and power in certain situations. They just decide that they have it in all situations. Mm. And conversely, yeah, yeah. because someone might not have much power in a certain situation, they have it in no situations. So they see, uh, you know, then say, okay, when interacting with the police force, being white probably just is an advantage. But 
people will look at that and go, okay, because someone is in an advantage there because of some characteristic they have, therefore they are an advantage at an advantage everywhere. So, for example, at Melbourne Uni, I think in certain situations, being white puts you at a disadvantage. And so, because yeah. because power exists yeah. in certain contexts, doesn't mean it exists everywhere. And that's a mistake that I see um, Spandrel making. Yeah, uh, Thomas Sowell has a good book, uh, which um, my friend just got me, uh, but I, I haven't read it yet, but sort of at least a high-level idea just from listening to Sowell talk about it. Um, uh, it's called... Uh, um, black rednecks and white liberals and uh, he basically just completely dispatches the book is basically dedicated to dispatching this uh, this way of thinking whether it's uh, like liberal like <clears throat> Thomas Sowell is very critical of uh, progressivism um, but the same thinking applies to Spantrell's argument because both the liberals and people like Spandrel are operating on the same bad explanation of the world, just using it to justify yeah, alternative yeah. Um, interpretations. And uh, the basic idea is uh, that you can, in fact, correctly uh, infer these sorts of social structures from something like the race, like race, like it's just not true. So... A good example would be like, you know, white people have power or white men have power. And it's like, yeah, what about rednecks? Like, we don't even think for a second. Like, nobody even thinks. I've pulled people up with using the word redneck. Um, Well, I not pulled them up. I said, like, I don't really like that word. Uh, And it's because when you actually think Mm. about it, it's actually a very derogatory thing to call another person. Uh, Like, uh, and... um. It's just like this, it's socially okay to just like, okay, there's this, say in America, like there's this underclass of poor white people who it is, it is socially okay to just shit on them. And not, mm, not yep. just like socially okay in like uh, just an informal setting, like in mainstream media, like on light, late night TV shows, like you can you can't make fun of poor African American people or in Australia like poor Aboriginal people, but you can shit all the fuck over um, poor white people and people don't give a fuck. But last time I checked, poverty, the suffering inflicted by poverty doesn't change based on your skin color. So we we do have these like this is just a this is just a really it's just a it's just false I guess it's just like, false it's what happens when yeah well it's when you're it's when your model of the world is just binary yeah. like you when you have a, a a just such a low dimensional view of the world that basically your measure for success is yes or no like is this person of this color or not and yeah, if you're working with that simplistic a model, you're going to get all sorts of really, really silly stuff. This is uh, a conspiracy theory, but it's not quite. <laughs> it's not. It's it's not quite a um, a classical conspiracy theory where 
um, there is a definite group of actors, known or unknown, um, like some known conspiracy theory actors are like, say, the Clintons. They're, they're the ones that are bad. Whereas other conspiracy theories, like some of the Ike stuff, is more like there's a cabal, a shady cabal behind the scenes. Like we don't know who they are, but there is definitely a consolidated group of actors. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas this is like, I would almost call this like a, uh, there must be, if we could do like a typology of conspiracy theories, this would, this, mm. this, this particular one would be kind of like a, uh, a diffuse decentralized conspiracy theory. And I think they're yeah, probably related to the Moloch stuff. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, and why I say it's conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory even though he doesn't say that there is actually like a specific group what he is saying is that this ideology has permeated out over the decades through the education system and so forth and now these people are acting like the leftists are acting if not in an explicitly coordinated fashion in like an ideologically unified fashion yeah he that describes it as a memeplex, I think, in the yeah. third blog post. Yeah, he calls it a memeplex. He seems to be proposing a, a mechanistic view of history whereby it, it really doesn't matter what different groups do in terms of their organisation or whether they, like, who tries to grab power or not. There is a leftward ratchet and it's inevitable. Yeah. And that's a, a historical necessity. It's almost, I wouldn't say an anti-conspiracy theory, or almost this decentralized inevitable conspiracy. Yeah, which is what these sort of um, mechanistic ideas of historical development almost inevitably lead to is, is, is a diffuse conspiracy. <laughs> Um, yeah, in a weird way. Yeah, it's. I don't know what else to say about it except that it's. That's what it is. Um, yeah. Would you recommend it? The conspiracy. Yeah, get around it. Uh, no, jo- no. Jo- join Cthulhu. Read <laughs> West Women Left. Boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, would I recommend uh, this book? The the Bioleninist Troika. The triptych of Bioleninist thought. Uh, this is my first exposure to neo-reactionary thinking, and mm. uh, unless you count, is a, this is kind of BAP adjacent, isn't it? And Mike Meyer adjacent. Yeah, this is definitely BAP adjacent, but it's not exactly the same thing. Um, it 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 seems as though, in my opinion, this guy is a better thinker than Bronze Age pervert. Which is not saying much. More lucid, definitely. Or more lucid, yeah. A lot less funny, but a lot more a lot less funny. coherent. Yeah. Would I recommend it? Is is this guy uh, known in in these circles? Like Yavin's the big dog, uh, or is this really obscure? I look. It's it's not super niche within the context of frog posters, but. He's not huge. He's not. He's not BAP level. Look, it's weird. If you want to go and read something weird, go and read this guy's. But it, like, probably, probably not. <laughs> Unless you just kind of <clears throat> want to gawk at something. 
the intellectual zoo. What, what do you reckon? Yeah, I'd say it's <laughs> it's it's very short. He repeats himself a great deal. I think in the interview he bragged that he writes like Michelle Welbeck does, where he yeah. just starts writing without a plan. And I think he probably could have done with a plan because this <laughs> this could have been like a thousand words. Mm. If like, if you really want to read them, just read the third blog post, the final of the trilogy, and that basically has everything. I guess it's kind of interesting to read and to, if you disagree, verbalise why you disagree rather than just, I think it's icky. Uh, but, yeah, look, it's not, it's not necessary. <laughs> You're not missing out if you don't read it. Actually, the, the thing that I was more interested in reading once I looked at his other stuff was his stuff about religion, which I haven't had a chance to read yet. But I would Yeah, making a new that. religion. Making the, so the claim that we need a religion one and two instead of like repurposing an existing religion creating a new one so that actually i would find more interesting than the bioleninism stuff um, i i did read those but yeah, know, it's, it's 11 43 p.m my time so look, no, no, we, we don't talk we're not going to do a discussion was, on that but i would say those blog posts are a lot more interesting okay maybe we should read those at some point or um or something yeah similar. Look, yeah I don't know. It was, hey man, it provided a really, we had a really interesting discussion. It was a good jumping off point for more interesting discussions. Yeah, but he does have systematic errors in his thinking. And that leads <laughs> yeah, to fairly fundamental end up systematic in very, errors in his thinking. In a very, uh, in a very strange place. Um, yeah. Actually, you know what? If you've just listened to this podcast, I don't yeah. recommend you reading the original source because our discussion was better than the original source. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless you just get a kick out of just reading stupid stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> which, which is a noble impulse. And <laughs> Names will probably read it. <laughs> yeah. Fucking good on your names. <laughs> so for the next, is the next episode going to be your... Defense Against the Dark Arts. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, special announcement, although it might end up, might be able to release Defense Against the Dark Arts uh, before this, maybe. Yeah, depending, like, yeah. Well, let's just see because we want, we want to start going up to a weekly schedule. So this particular part of the conversation might sound a bit weird depending on when we release the episodes. Um, but, yes, uh, I've got a series coming out, Defense Against the Dark Arts, about... Uh, essentially critical thinking <laughs> and using uh, the episodes that we've covered to sort of give examples of like errors in thinking and that sort of stuff, just because um, we want to try and increase our content and come up with some like original work and stuff. So yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Then after that, I think we're doing Alexander Dugan's fourth political theory and I'm reading American Psycho. And, and Jack's going to be doing a bunch of uh, solo episodes on, on, on fiction books on so, yeah. fiction research <laughs> hopefully if, you, if, if you in, <laughs> if you're enjoying the podcast we um had a really good year last year we're really happy with how things went we're really happy with the discord um so if you're one of those people that um like our stuff good news we're, we're going to be trying to increase um content output this year 
yeah, the goals, the goals weekly content output. So if you've if you've yeah. made it this far, you can expect more of this in a week. And thanks for making it this far as well. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Um, all right, Jack. Any final thoughts? Yeah. No, that's it. Uh, no. Join the Discord. No. Come say hi. Other than that, Discord. Um, thanks for the Discord's great. Everyone should get on there. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> They're fucking crazy, man. They're crazy. We should, we should probably make some more channels. Give some like, hmm, have a think about it. Anyways, different conversation. Let's get off. Thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>